Well, when we invite guest preachers to come stand in this pulpit and speak, we send them um, a form ahead of time asking what scriptures they would like read ahead of their sermon. And I'm no exception. I'm supposed to report, although I may be the latest one to turn mine in, um, <laughs> what scriptures I would like read before I preach. And I was tempted just to turn in today the whole Bible, please. <laughs> Attempt something big. <laughs> Here we go. Last month, uh, Jim and I celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary. Uh, when we married on a beautiful day in March, a beautiful day like the days this week, uh, Jim moved in with me into the parsonage where I lived at the church where I served as a pastor. And that entailed combining all of our stuff. Um, bringing two sets of towels into the linen closet and two sets of dishes and appliances into the kitchen and the rest of Jim's stuff sort of crammed into the garage because we didn't have room really for two households to combine as one. And so within the first year of our marriage, we um, found out that we were moving, as pastors find out sometimes, to a church on the other side of Houston, and we were excited. But we also faced one of the most challenging and formative acts that a couple can undertake together, and that act is house hunting. House hunting is difficult in the best of conditions. Don't let HGTV tell you otherwise. Um, but I was going to be serving in actually one of the most affluent areas of Houston, and we couldn't afford any of the houses close to that church. We couldn't afford to live where our church members lived. The housing prices were so high that there wasn't anything close to our price range, and anything that was was either too tiny or needed so many repairs that we wouldn't have the money to even consider. And so uh, we employed an exhausted realtor who drove us in endless circles as we said the same thing to each uh, place that she pointed out. Not that, not that, not that. And finally, we located an area across the freeway from the church, across the proverbial tracks. Not an area where any of our church members lived at that point. Jim found it, actually, with our, uh, without our annoyed realtor's help. Um, it was a brand new neighborhood, new construction. And there were new houses going up daily, one after another. And so while it wasn't close to the church where I served and it wasn't close to where any of our church members lived, it had one very important quality, we could afford it. So because this house was still under construction, it was literally a blank slate. And it had the upside that we would get to be the first people ever to live in this house. And after years of having grown up living in dorms and apartments and rentals and a parsonage that had been lived in by way too many pastors before us, it felt appealing to be the first inhabitants of this new space. Clean, clear walls, no holes in them. Clean carpet, new appliances. Any dent or scratch would be one that we put there. Any stain would be one we knew how it ended up there. And the yard was so literally a clean slate that the builders just left it with sand. <laughs> if we wanted to plant anything, we had to literally buy dirt before we planted grass. So this clean slate became our new home. And the new house smell eventually wore off. 
and it was our home for over eight years. And it was filled with the celebrations of our first anniversary and all of our first milestones together. And it was filled with a lot of prayer and a lot of tears and longings for a family to fill it. But finally, five years after we moved in there, the upstairs office uh, became a nursery, painted with green and brown elephants to welcome a new member of the family. And then two years later was repainted pink to welcome yet another. And we did leave our mark on that house. We left dents and scratches, and I could tell you some stories about a couple of stains we left on the carpet. But we also brought in dirt and grass and trees that we planted. That one behind us, I think, was a gift uh, for an anniversary. And by the time uh, we left, the trees had actually grown to look like trees. And the last time we drove by, they were taller than the house. And that place, once a blank slate, never before lived in, became a home full of memories, not because of its location, not because of its price or its architecture, but because a family lived in it together and grew inside. When God is in the market to raise a family, where does he go looking for real estate? I love that Genesis begins with God putting a down payment on a neighborhood so new that no one has lived in it before. The space is clean of previous owners. Not only are there no nail holes in the sheetrock, there are no footprints because, hey, there's no feet yet. No previous owners even exist for this space. And this is God's never before lived in new construction. And so Eden seems to us an indescribable beauty uh, we know of the story of Eden containing rivers that flow out to nourish the nations, a wealth of plants, uh, animals that come, and of course humans created for companionship with each other and unity and friendship with God. And the pictures we have in our minds of Eden are so glorious, so perfect, but the way I read its page on Zillow is that its greatest asset what truly made it a home was the presence of God himself. That's what made Eden perfect. All the perfection of Eden would not have been perfect without God's presence there. And God wanted a home, a place to dwell with his people. And this was the perfect real estate. So he placed them there with the instructions to work and keep the garden till and keep, our translation said today, work and keep, those are God's specific instructions, work to cultivate it and make things grow and keep it to guard its sanctity, to work and keep this place where they live and connect with each other and dwell with God, walk with God in the cool of the day where there'd be no barriers between them, a place to dwell with a God who loved them so dearly. So after eight years in our first home together, our little family began the task of house hunting again. We were comfortable in our church. We didn't want to leave. We were comfortable in our community. We were comfortable in our little growing family, but somehow the house and the neighborhood just didn't feel like the right fit for us anymore. And we had saved up enough money to move up into one of those neighborhoods, closer to the church and to friends and schools maybe the lowest end of the price range that was closer. So we began circling again in the back of a realtor's car, and this time we spotted it with ease, 
our dream home. There it was, 44 Pine Path. It was in the least posh neighborhood of the most posh area of Houston. And it was just right for us, just affordable enough with a, a big entranceway, a playroom for all the kids' junk, a huge yard, and it, it already had trees and dirt and grass. <laughs> and the week we closed on our dream house, we went and collected our keys and we began moving in our boxes and we began to unpack. And then I swung by the church. I went by my office in the middle of moving and the, there was a blinking light on my phone indicating I had a voicemail. It was Asbury Seminary. They were looking for someone to hire in the position of Dean of Chapel. And, my name had come to someone on the search committee. <clears throat> Evidently, when they prayed about the position, my name just popped up. It's hard to argue with prayer. So I started the application process, and we wondered if we should even unpack. And we prayed. That house was filled with prayer as well. In my prayers, I told God how comfortable we were. And he asked me, who ever told you that your comfort was my goal? We made some memories in that house, and we closed on the sale of that house six months to the day that we bought it. And actually, we never grieved it that much. Maybe we didn't really have a chance to bond with that house. Maybe it wasn't as comfortable inside as we had dreamed it would be. Dream houses aren't always everything you dream of, especially when God gives you a new dream. Sometimes God just calls you to follow, whether it makes sense or not. And sometimes it just doesn't, until later. God's first real estate plan for a home with his family seems not to have lasted long. Just three chapters in, the human family was evicted for violating the rules of their renter's agreement. One rule, actually, there was only one rule. And so much of the rest of God's story is about searching for another perfect home where he can dwell with and be close to his family, about a desire to build a place where God can live in intimacy without barriers, without shame. God wants to live with his children, just like in the Eden he started with. And God's people were on the road a lot. And God traveled with them, leading in a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, tabernacling with them. God had an RV of sorts, a way to come alongside. It was not ideal, but it had a kind of nomad chic appeal. And when God's deep desire to settle down with his people led them to a new home, a promised land, generations later, a king promised God to build him a more permanent home. So God began rolling out the blueprints. And this house, although it was built with human hands, would be shaped to God's exact specifications. And let's just say these specifications are very, very specific. So specific that many of you have taken entire classes or are in the process of writing entire dissertations about the chapters and chapters detailing God's specifics for the temples, measurements, decorations, implements, furnishings, and materials, and all the activities that would take place there. And as the space got closer to the heart of God in the temple, the Holy of Holies, the place God would move in and dwell with his people, the more precise the details got. It's a space that was decorated with the imagery of leaves, 
flowers and fruit trees, all reflecting their original home in Eden. With a curtain to mark a boundary to the entrance and a place that was supposed to be the perfect place for God to dwell with his people. So perfect that its exact measurements were very specifically the same. The same in width, the same in length, and the same in height. That holy of holies, a perfect cube. And the priests who were called to minister there were given such specific instructions as to how they would minister in this holy place, but always with the goal of God's people being able to dwell closely with God. And the instructions for the priests, listen to this, were to serve and guard in the temple, to serve and guard. That's how it's translated sometimes, but they are the exact words given to Adam to work and keep just translated differently in different places. Which makes me want to ask, was Adam a priest in the garden? Or are the priests gardeners in the temple? These are places where God's spirit is alive with growth. And the God who still calls us to work and keep and serve and guard, who calls us to be priests and gardeners so that God can tend a place for his people to live with him. So nine years ago this spring, April to be exact, we came to Wilmore on a house hunting trip. I had just accepted this position at Asbury. We would be moving from Texas to Wilmore, Kentucky in July, and we needed a place to dwell. We brought our four-year-old son Drew along with us so that he could see the surroundings for himself and help with the transition, but he believed he was coming with his own opinions about where we should live. <laughs> Four-year-olds are opinionated like that. Thirteen-year-olds are too. <laughs> he came with a checklist of what he was looking for to have three things. Number one, a basement, which none of us had ever had before, being from Texas. There are no basements. Number two, a fireplace. And number three, a garden. So we showed up, Jim and I, with our four-year-old son in tow, and we did what any normal person does. We engaged a realtor who drove us in circles, and we had one day to do house hunting, where in the past we had had months. And our realtor met us and drove us around the only four houses in this town that were for sale. <laughs> some of you have done this before, some are doing it now. And none of those four houses seemed right to us. And so we went away discouraged and defeated, and we stopped by the seminary, and uh, we bumped into our friend Peg Hutchins, who was here, and she said, oh, that's not how you buy a house in Wilmore. You have to know somebody. Okay. <laughs> and she knew somebody who was about to build a home and put their house on the market. Did we want to see it? So we drove up to a home that looked exactly like something out of my childhood dreams about where happy families lived. We walked through the house trying not to let our mouths drop open because every detail of it seemed to be made for us, not because it was fancy, not because it was posh, but because we could see our family at home and thriving there. And as we walked, Drew was checking off his own list. Yep, there's the basement. Mm-hmm. There's the fireplace and out back, why yes, there's the garden. And he told us we were buying that house. <laughs> and he left the grown-ups to negotiate. And the negotiations actually uh, involved us moving into a different space. We lived in the North Maple Apartments, now known as pet housing to you. There were no pets allowed then. Um, for six months, we lived there. And I don't think we would have had a pet anyway at the time because uh, my policy anyway was that all humans had to be housebroken before any animals came into the family. <laughs> they were not yet. 
Well, we did finally move into a dream house that went well with the new dream. And nine years later, I'm still in awe that God prepared a place for us in Wilmore. The process of finding a home here, the process of all of this just seemed like a miracle to me. And you were sitting out there, all these little miracles of how God has brought you from dwelling place to dwelling place. He's even brought you here this week. The ways he's been with you every step of the way, how does God do that? Even the little details, even tiny things that a would please the heart of a four-year-old boy, miracles to them, like a basement and a fireplace and a garden. A garden. I mean, that's where it all started. That's where we were supposed to walk with God in this close-knit intimacy, no barriers, no shame, no death, and a river running through it. And some would say with no Eden and no temple, we are a people perpetually circling the neighborhood in the realtor's car, trying to find a place to dwell peacefully with our God. But the truth is, God didn't wait for us to circle and find him. He came looking for us. God became flesh. And it says he tabernacled among us. He moved in and dwelled to signal that God could come alongside even a nomadic people on the move and come and dwell with them in a perfect way. Jesus came to dwell with us. Jesus became our living water like the rivers flowing out of Eden. If you only knew, he said, the gift of God in this water, you would have asked me and I would have given you the living water. Jesus acted out the role of the temple, declaring to the horror of the religious leaders, your sins are forgiven, offering forgiveness that you could only obtain with the services of the temple. So he declared himself to be the place where God's concentrated presence dwelled on earth. He even claimed that if you pulled the temple down, he could rebuild it in three days. That sounded curious to people. But then three days after his crucifixion death, when it still didn't make sense to anyone in the fog of their grief, he appeared alive to the women in a garden where they mistook him for a gardener. Maybe he is. What real estate does God go looking for when he's looking for a place to settle down and be close to his family? He, he wants a place that's alive, a living temple, a house not built with stones, a place where he can live with intimacy and no barriers. Where does God want to live? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received? Do you not know that the real estate God is looking for in intimacy is you. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that the thing that always makes God's dwelling places special is not its decoration, but the fact of God's presence there, a place for a father to be close to his children. In my father's house, he told us, there are many dwelling places, you and you and you. And if you flip to the end of the story that Pam read for us, you find that Revelation offers us another glimpse of real estate that is to come, the glorious home of the New Jerusalem, as told in Revelation, with a tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, and river flowing outward to bring nourishing living water to all. 
And it's so similar to Eden. Do you see it? In so many ways, and yet it's a city. And that's curious to me. I mean, it is a city whose shape is familiar. It's a city whose measurements are so carefully recorded as equal in height and width and length. Sound familiar? A perfect cube. A city built as a square. I've never seen a city like that laid out in a perfect cube, but it actually reflects the dimensions of that first holy of holies, that inner sanctuary, a place of divine presence. The entire city built to shape that reminds us that God wants to dwell in a concentrated way with his people, not just with one priest, not just once a year, but every day. But I keep asking myself, maybe it's I took too much IBS and I can't stop asking questions of the text. Why a city? Where else in scripture does God build a city? People build cities. Gardens are more God's style. But this Eden-like, temple-shaped, new Jerusalem, it, it doesn't seem to have any of the negative marks that we think of cities having, like overcrowding or pollution. Why a city here at the end? Cities are most often what people build in Scripture, not God. And so perhaps, hear that word carefully, perhaps God is introducing a new place where he'll dwell with his people as a city, as a way of saying, let's build this together. Come and build new creation with me. It will be a place for us to build together and for us to dwell together. If civilization is often the work of people and gardens are often the work of God, why not have both in the very same place? I thought a lot about this back in February when we were experiencing God's presence in a very concentrated way during what we called that outpouring, what the world called the Asbury Revival. The overwhelming move of God, you remember overwhelming? Some of it's still overwhelming. Right as our semester got started, uh, some of you were here in town, some of you were watching online, like how are all those people fitting in Wilmore? And I remember reading a comment on social media where someone praised the leadership at Asbury University saying they did a beautiful job of planning the Asbury revival. <laughs> and another person commented, you're laughing because it feels like that no one planned that. That was a work of God. And I remember thinking, well, yes, but also we were right in the middle of leaders and volunteers, pretty much the whole community, working around the clock, making very hard decisions, and yes, planning and leading, working to steward and steer, to work and keep a move of God that the Holy Spirit was so clearly leading. It was a full-time job for a lot of people. So yes, God led it, and yes, people led it. It was like building a home for God while the plane was flying, a place for God to meet with his people, stewarded by humans, brought by God. Someone said in the middle of it, and I, I, this stuck with me, someone said, revival is like a honeymoon. It's a sweet time for intimate connection where all other commitments are set aside. The schedule goes away. The commitments go away. It's a time of beginning something. Honeymoons are sweet, but honeymoons end. But 
this person, this very wise person said, the purpose of a honeymoon is to make a home. I don't think I'll ever forget that. The purpose of a honeymoon is to make a home, and revival's like a honeymoon. So in the middle of this outpouring revival, whatever we're calling it, I had some previous commitments where I had to turn my attention away from the full-time job we all had of hosting the world, and I had to even leave town for a day to speak at some churches and to help them with some decisions they were making about their denominational affiliations, to help them decide uh, who they would be in the future, what name would be on the sign. And I remember as I was driving out of Wilmore, watching all these people driving into Wilmore at this deep hunger to be with God, and here I was leaving to do this very messy work, and I just thought, why am I leaving this place? What does all this matter? Who cares what Christian tribe you belong to? Just be Christians. I mean, that's what it felt like. But then I also thought, really, upon returning, kind of the second half, that second week, I thought, you know, the outpouring brought all kinds of Christians to Wilmore, all kinds of Christians. There were wonderful people here. I mean, I was prayed over and blessed by so many people. But there were all kinds of Christians here. Some brought megaphones <laughs> and signs and offensive t-shirts claiming that God hated gay people. I didn't want to be in that tribe. There were Christians here who stopped our students in wheelchairs, our students who use canes to get around, and wanted to pray over them, didn't really ask, tried to pray over them again and again and again. They were just trying to get to class. There were Christians who cornered a young man, a visitor, in a wheelchair right in this hallway and forcefully prayed for him without his consent, even lifting him out of his chair and trying to stand him to his feet to test the healing. And who would have kept forcibly praying unless we intervened and stopped what was an abusive prayer? That There are all kinds of Christians. And so I began to think, well, we can't just be Christians. We need to figure out what kind of Christians we are. And then I began to remember that as Wesleyans, we're the ones who bring methods to the movements. We're the ones who find sustainability so that, poof, when revivals end, when honeymoons are over, homes can be built, relationships established, we're the ones who remember that Christians need Christians and churches need churches and that we all need discipleship and training and accountability. And, and that means building something right alongside God and what he is building in us and through us, a place for God to dwell with his people. And so, yes, systems matter. Seminaries matter. Even denominations matter. The way that we find our home with God is different for a lot of Christians, but what you choose will matter. It's a place that we build together with God, a place that is Eden-like, not because we're perfect, or the church is perfect, or the seminary is perfect, but because this is a place God wants to dwell with us. Um, we did finally house train all the humans. <laughs> And the growing home accepted more growing animals. And I was reminded once again that the purpose of a honeymoon is to make a home. God shows us again and again in scripture that his deep desire is to dwell with us. 
He's, he's been traveling with us all along. In each residence that you've ever lived, God has been there. In each place that you will go, God will be there. He just wants to dwell with you, to find a place alongside you to work and keep and guard and steward this new place of dwelling. Some of it will be in your hands in God's movement. And what makes it beautiful is not its perfection, not your gifts, not its decorations, but the presence of the God who dwells there. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we are a people who long to be with you. Our hearts are hungry. And we forget sometimes that that hunger's for you and we try to fill it with other things. So forgive us, Lord. Help us to feel again our deep hunger to live with you in a concentrated way. Not only in outpourings, Lord, not only in weeks of seminary hybrid classes, not only in mountaintop experiences, but in the everyday home you long to build with us. Lord, help us to steward that well. Help us to be a family that invites others in through the front door, the back door, that proclaims to the world that this home is a place you long for them to be as well. And God, as you meet with us here in this space, prepare us to work and keep in your kingdom. We love you, Lord, and we love dwelling with you. Help us to stay in the house of the Lord forever. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.